Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and I am joining you today solo uh, as an effort to release a few more solo podcasts to go along with my interview episodes. I want to just do a little more frequent updates on kind of what I'm up to from a training standpoint and mostly though dive into some of the questions that kind of come rolling in throughout the course of my day. Uh, I've been doing a little bit of crowdsourcing on Twitter to pick up some some interesting questions and so far I've been getting some really good ones so I'll probably continue there but if you have questions that you want me to try to answer or just topics that you'd like me to touch on feel free to send them my way either through email or social media messenger and things like that. I'd be happy to to add them to the list. So I actually got quite a few more in than what I'm probably going to record for this episode. So I'll save it for the next one. So if you listen to this and you're like, Hey, I sent you a question, what's up? It'll come just, uh, I'm going to try to keep it to maybe three or four per episode so that these ones don't get too long winded, but I will eventually get to all of them. Uh, I'm going to continue on with my last solo episode as well with giving yourself a challenge workout to consider just trying out and seeing if it's something you maybe want to either introduce into your training fitness protocol, or maybe if you already do it, just kind of test uh, how you maybe stack up compared to what I consider beginner, intermediate, and advanced categories for these type of things, as well as highlight a sample day from my daily life, one question I get a lot is both kind of on the training side, as well as the nutrition side of just like, well, what do you eat on a daily basis or how many miles do you run? And it's always kind of a hard one for me to answer because it really just depends on like where I am at my training cycle. So in an effort to highlight that a bit, I'm just going to like pick specific days and share with you, like on this day, this is what I did from an exercise standpoint or a training standpoint. And this is what I ate to kind of support that. And then over time, if you follow a lot of these solo episodes, you may get a better like holistic grasp of kind of how I treat, say a bigger training day or a higher volume, lower intensity day or a higher intensity, lower volume or a rest day and kind of start piecing some of this stuff together. But for the question part, uh, just a quick overview of some of the questions I am going to touch on. Uh, One question was in relation to like metabolic flexibility, ketosis and optimal carb intake. So we're going to touch on that for a bit. Uh, training for hilly courses, but with a caveat of living in a flat area. Uh, This is a great one because a lot of people like to get out on the trails. They like to travel the destination races and things like that. And oftentimes the course profile may offer some challenging climbs and descents that they don't have access to at home. And they need to find a way to prepare themselves despite not having access to course specific train. So we touch on that. Another one on shoe stack height. Uh, This is an interesting topic to me because in the last uh, five or six years, essentially, like shoe stack height has become something that is more of a performance thing versus what used to be kind of more of a recovery option. And we'll talk about kind of the hows and whys of that. And then another interesting topic that I thought was just like uh, around the, the category of aging and like, how do you reassess your goals when you've essentially maybe ran your fastest race or hit your highest PR and whether strength routine you're doing, like how do you stay motivated and kind of keep showing up despite kind of having your, your best days behind you. And this is a little more specific to running, but what makes a good course or event, what kind of comes together to make a race be popular touch on that a little bit, or at least my take on what I see kind of working within that. 
If you enjoy this podcast and wish to support either monetarily or by sharing, liking, and subscribing, please head over to zackbetter.com forward slash HPO for options, which include joining my Patreon page, making a quick one-time donation, which includes options to avoid the need of joining a third-party platform, or subscribing to HPO on your favorite podcast listening or viewing platforms. You can also support HPO through the show sponsors. Details on all discounts and promotions from HPO show sponsors can be found at zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. That link is in the show notes. Speaking of show sponsors, for this episode, my friends at Element are sharing some of their goodness to HPO listeners with some of their free products for the cost of shipping. Element makes an electrolyte supplement with no sugar. Each packet is loaded with 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. They come in convenient single-serve packets that make them great for bringing along for a run, hike, to the gym, or while traveling. Personally, I love using these in a variety of different ways. I'll use some of their chocolate flavor in my coffee in the morning. I'll use their fruit flavors throughout the day as I'm rehydrating after big workouts. And sometimes I'll even throw their plain and more spicy flavors into a travel bag to add to food dishes and things while I'm traveling on the road. So head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO to take advantage of your free sample pack, which includes eight unique flavor samples for the cost of shipping. Link can also be found in the show notes or by heading over to the show sponsor page, which is zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Also sponsoring this episode is my friends at Bioptimizers and their product Breakthrough Magnesium. It is the only organic full spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium. There are actually seven unique forms of magnesium and you must get all of them if you want to experience its calming sleep enhancing effects. I take two of the capsules before bed at night. That's why I recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. As always, Bioptimizers offers their 360-day money-back guarantee, so you can try them at try them out risk-free and see for yourself if they work for you. You can head over to bioptimizers.com forward slash human and enter promo code HUMAN10, that's H-U-M-A-N-1-0, to get 10% off your next order. The link and promo is in the show notes and also at zackbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. All right, so let's let's jump right in then with that being outlined. So training update for me is I am getting pretty confident in where my fitness is at. And most importantly, for this particular buildup, where my ankle strength is in my right ankle, which I injured at the end of July, I've been able to string together quite a few solid weeks of training. And what I want to do now is start kind of focusing in on specific training to match what I feel would be a great peaking phase for a flat runnable hundred mile type of distance and course profile. So when targeting a hundred mile race intensity, I like to do small doses of faster running than hundred mile pace, but mostly focusing on trying to target hundred mile race intensity and get as much volume as I can recover from, from that. So I usually kind of measure that out in like a week's time frame. So historically speaking, when I can get to about a hundred miles of my training during the week at 
or a bit faster than hundred mile goal intensity. And I can string a couple of weeks like that together in a row. I'm pretty confident that I'm going to be able to take a, take a swing at a, at a fast hundred miler. So right now, if things go well this week, I'll probably get pretty close to that metric. So then if I can get another week or two like that in, it might be time to jump into something and test out how my fitness is, how my training went, and ultimately how well, how strong my, my right ankle is going to hold up. And for those who haven't been following along with the kind of that story, essentially my protocol there is, uh, I injured it. I had some partial tears and some ligaments on my right ankle. So the move was to kind of simultaneously strengthen it and increase training load very gradually on controlled surfaces. First, if I can get through a full training build up and race for a single day ultra on flat controllable train, then I can kind of start exposing more varied train to it and just ultimately get it to a point where it's really strong in that area. And I'm less likely to have a situation like that happen again. So that's kind of where I'm at with the training side of things right now. Uh, if folks are interested in seeing kind of more details on that, like what I'm doing on a daily basis or dive into some of the real specifics, like heart rates at certain paces and things like that, you can head over to my Strava page where I kind of log all my training there. If you just search for Zach Bitter Strava, it'll pop up and, and all that stuff is public. So for those of you who want to check out that head over there, uh, questions next, uh, one question that came in via Twitter from Alex Hargrove was kind of a bigger topic, or I think maybe a, a few topics actually, but they're kind of in the similar category in a lot of cases, which is this kind of idea of metabolic flexibility, ketosis, and optimal carb intake. Um, Alex added that he loves reading my sometimes contrarian takes on these things and just wants to hear a little bit more about like the hows and whys within that. So Alex, if you haven't, or if anyone else who's interested in these topics and what my take on them, as well as what someone who's perhaps more educated on this topic than I am has to what has to say about it, I would definitely check out my most recent podcast that I did uh, with uh, Matt uh, Matt Carpenter. He is a PhD researcher out of the UK. Uh, my frequent listeners will know he's doing some studies right now on cyclists and runners along the lines of uh, just the ketogenic low carb diet and kind of like what's actually being practiced in the field versus like what we consider a ketogenic diet in the literature, where there's a bunch of ranges in that, even in the literature and how we actually define that. Is it context dependent and things like that? We dove into a lot of topics around this on that. And I think we had about an hour and a half uh, where we went back, we chatted about that sort of stuff. And it was really cool to, to chat with Matt because for one, he is immersed in the research. Uh, he has to stay on top of it to do his job as well as produce it. So he sees things both that gets published and ultimately kind of quote unquote verified by science. And then he also sees a lot of things come across his desk that maybe never will get published, but are very interesting, either anecdotes or uh, smaller case study type things. So I'm interested in both what he has learned that he can feel confident in saying versus what he suspects and what he thinks maybe will come and just where the research is heading with that sort of stuff. So that'd be a real fun lesson for you. If you're kind of interested in a little bit of a deeper dive than I'll be able to do on these kind of things. Uh, I'll also add previous guests from a little bit further back is Dr. Mike Nelson. He's been on the, on the podcast twice. Uh, I had him on for episode 223 and 245. 
And if you're interested in metabolic flexibility specifically, then uh, Dr. Mike Nelson's great. He, uh, he does a lot of work and research within this category and works with people on this. But uh, generally speaking, on my side of it, metabolic flexibility is kind of an interesting word where I think it, it can kind of get confusing because it's a little nebulous where it's like, well, how do we even define metabolic flexibility? And to me, I think really it kind of comes down to what you're trying to achieve. So being metabolically flexible, I think there's always kind of a give or take versus like this optimal zone where I can just like hyper process and utilize carbohydrates at an endless amount if needed, or also burning super high rates of fat and really lean on that in, in super high doses at time. I think it's a little more kind of a give or take with that sort of stuff. So then it becomes a question of which side of that you kind of want to flex quote unquote, or need to flex. So I'll touch on the extremes here to kind of highlight what I mean by that. If, um, if I want to be metabolically prepared for like something that I may not be able to eat or have fuel or have access to carbohydrates for long periods of time, maybe multi-days, something like that. Well, then I want to be burning super high fat rates for something like that. So, so metabolically flexible for that person or that particular goal is going to be maybe a little bit different than say someone who's trying to see how far they can run in two hours or in 90 minutes or something like that. So that person would maybe be a little more glycolytic or be potentially tapping into their glycogen stores deep enough where intra-race fueling is going to become a question. So if that person is unable to consume enough carbohydrates to defend their muscle glycogen or burn high enough amounts of fat to spare muscle glycogen at their peak pace for that particular distance or time, then, you know, they're, they're likely not metabolically flexible enough. So there's kind of some extremes there where, um, like, what do you consider flexible is flexible being able to take in 90 to hundred grams of carbohydrate per hour without having a stomach issue, uh, or is metabolically flexible being able to run hours on end without fueling at all and not feel like you have a big energy dip. Um, I have a hard time believing you can kind of do both simultaneously. I think if you get too far to one end of the spectrum, than the other, it comes at a pretty big expense on the other one. So, uh, for someone who leans more towards fat or a ketogenic diet, their, their trade-off is likely they just won't be able to probably take in as much carbohydrate, uh, as someone who eats moderate to high carbohydrates and practices fueling with that type of a fuel source routinely in their training. Just like if someone is like quote unquote, doing a train your gut protocol where they're eating a lot of carbohydrate and frequently consuming it during their runs itself, rarely ever doing a fasted run or an unfueled run. You know, that person may be able to process huge amounts of carbohydrate, but they may struggle a bit if they find themselves in a situation where they can't get that fuel source. Uh, so those are the extremes. So I think metabolic flexibility, flexibility is avoiding those extreme ends and preparing your body to be able to not only utilize your muscle glycogen and exogenous carbohydrates efficiently enough for the task at hand, but also be able to do hours of low intensity to moderate intensity exercise with little to no fuel. If you need to, I think that's kind of the sweet spot and where most people are trying to target with metabolic flexibility. And for me personally, that tends to come somewhere in the low carb category. Like I don't feel like I'm as metabolically flexible when I'm on a very strict ketogenic diet 
and basically avoiding carbohydrate almost altogether. I also don't feel very metabolically flexible if I'm up into kind of the moderate to high carbohydrate category and fueling all my runs with carbohydrate. Uh, in that scenario, I feel like I just am on a roller coaster of energy throughout the day and uh, just have a harder time kind of feeling consistent and more even keel and in control. And since I'm doing very long distance racing, that side of the, the, the equation is important to me is being able to be kind of calm, focused, and even energy for long, long periods of time without having to like prepare for uncertain dips and spikes in energy. Uh, ketosis and optimal carb intake, these kind of bleed into what I talked about a little bit. And the ketosis piece of this is the one where I think probably taking a peek at my episode uh, with uh, Matt Carpenter is going to be probably a little more valuable than, than my little shorter answer here. But gener generally speaking, I think ketosis is a little bit of a moving target that is more dependent on lifestyle than it is the actual intake of fuel. So someone can say, I'm on a ketogenic diet and what they're actually eating and how much of it is much more probably in line with what they're doing versus what they're actually eating. So if I decided to do as little exercise as I could possibly get away with, a ketogenic diet is likely going to be kind of close to some of those numbers that you probably see in the Volok Finney type research of like 50 grams or less. Uh, if I'm all of a sudden trying to do a structure training program, uh, you know, ketosis might be 100, 150 grams of carbohydrate just because you know, I might be doing enough workload to be doubling my resting metabolic rate at times. It, it may also depend on like, what does that training consist of? Is it higher intensity stuff, moderate intensity stuff, very low intensity stuff, but higher volume. These things all kind of like determine what I think would be considered a ketogenic diet. Uh, you could maybe look at it also as like, what is your level of blood ketones, which maybe shines a little bit of a light onto why the activity or the lifestyle plays a big role here. Uh, for a lot of people to get into what would be considered a ketogenic level of blood ketones, which people are probably going to say the entry levels between about 0.5 to 1.0 uh, millimoles of ketones in your blood. You know, that might take a couple days of very restricted carb feeding to get to that for someone who is traditionally following a moderate to high carbohydrate diet. And then it may take even longer for them to start feeling good within that framework. Um, then you might take someone like myself who's doing a lot of uh, aerobic training. You know, I might be able to get into ketosis in a few hours by just going out for a run. So for someone like that, a little bit more carbohydrate than what would be in a typical strict ketogenic diet from a gram standpoint of 50 grams or less may build up because you just can keep higher amounts of blood ketones circulating because you're, you're using up any of that exogenous carbohydrate you're using quite quickly and returning back to those higher uh, fat oxidation rates. Um, but one thing I should probably touch on, or maybe bounce back on with the metabolic flexibility thing is one thing that that Matt was chatting about too, is there's this other side to the kind of the, the story here with metabolic flexibility and fat oxidation rates and things like that, where you could go into a lab and go through a battery of tests and have what we would consider this beautiful profile of quote unquote metabolic flexibility, where you have really high fat oxidation rates. You seem to be able to hit your splits in faster sessions and things like that, but you just feel miserable all the time. Like, is that really being metabolically flexible or is that really ideal versus kind of being able to replicate that training, but feel good doing it? 
Uh, and that may feed in kind of just like the long-term sustainability of a certain approach too. So these are things I think people should consider and be honest with themselves when they're picking whatever dietary trend they kind of want to follow for, uh, for their training protocol. And uh, the other part too, is just that kind of enters the world of uh, kind of unanswerable questions at the moment. And I think guys like Matt are going to help us answer these over, over the years, as we get more research, it's just like, how long do I give it before I give up on it? Because I have seen situations where like someone felt miserable for four or five, six weeks on a low carb ketogenic diet. And it'd be easy if they took that experience and just said, okay, well, it just doesn't work for me, but they had a switch flip because for whatever reason they stuck with it. And all of a sudden they started feeling great. So there may be, uh, some reason to think that there's a transition period that is a little more lengthy than like a few days, even if the fat oxidation rates and the blood ketone levels start to spike early on, if that kind of makes sense. Optimal carbon take kind of talked about that a little bit. It's probably context dependent for if you're just curious about what I see anecdotally or what I gathered from the data standpoint from folks I work with, I can share some or some, some highlights, some of that stuff too. Cause at this point in time, I've probably I've consulted with and coached well over a thousand people with this approach. And generally speaking, when someone's following a structured endurance plan, a good starting point that I usually work with people at is around hundred to 150 grams of carbohydrate per day when we are doing structured training. And we can always adjust that as we start seeing workout results flow in. So if we notice that they're feeling a little bit flat or missing their last gear, and we need to go a little bit above that 150 grams, we can do that. Uh, if we notice they're nailing their workouts and for whatever reason, they want to try to kind of skew a little lower, we can try that out and see what happens. And I've certainly had individuals that operate outside of that. And also the, another likely scenario is rather than just a complete plug and play hundred to 150 grams of carbohydrates per day, every day, each day, you're likely going to find more success from my experience by looking at that as an average when multiple days are combined. So you may have a day where you do a really big workout and the time frames around that workout, make it so that you have a day or two where you're well above 150 grams of carbohydrate, but that big workout likely recovers uh, adequate recovery, which is just going to be less training. So you're kind of in the extreme categories here of big training and big rest on those rest days, you'd maybe be able to go quite a bit below hundred grams, but then average out over three, four, five days in that hundred to 150 gram kind of category. Uh, so that's kind of one thing I see with that too, is looking at it through a multi-day lens when you're looking at these averages versus having to be strict and firm each day and every day. And I find that not only to work better from a result standpoint, uh, when I'm looking at workout, workout and metrics and things like that, that we're going to gauge to see improvement, but also when it comes to just the person's ability to kind of tolerate and stick to an approach that may be a little bit atypical compared to what they were, they're previously used to, if they had been following a moderate to high carbohydrate diet. All right. Training for hilly courses while living on flatland. And this one came from Sean Beck. And, uh, Sean, I love this question because I spent the early stages of my ultra running career living in Wisconsin, which, um, is obviously in the Midwest. And obviously for folks that, uh, know a little bit of geography about the Midwest realize there aren't mountains. <laughs> there are some bluffs. If you find the right spots in Wisconsin and you can find Hills and things like that. But if you're looking for something where it's like a two to three mile 
15 plus percent grade climb followed by a descent like you're going to get in Colorado, California, and some of these more mountainous states, then you aren't going to be able to replicate that in a perfect way in your training. And I mean, this is a, this is an interesting topic, even for just people who live in states like that too, because uh, you may not have the time to access the mountains, even if they're relatively close, if you have a busy life. So you might just be able to get to them occasionally versus be able to make them a primary focus of your training. So then what does someone do if they say, I want to do a race out in Colorado or California that has these steep climbs and descents, but my training environment doesn't necessarily include those access points. Um, a few things that I like to focus on. One is just a little bit more of emphasis on speed work than maybe I would otherwise. Uh, some strength work focus and possibly some weighted vest type of stuff. And I'll touch on kind of what I mean with each of those. So with the speed workout stuff, one thing that we're looking to do is lean a little bit into the power side of that. So I'm going to include speed work, like short intervals into a training program, regardless of whether the person has access to hills or not. But if they have no access to the hills that they're going to see on race day, I may just keep a element of that training in their program a bit longer or a bit closer to race day uh, so that we can sort of replicate what they're going to be doing on some of the uphill running a little bit more eccentric contraction when you're doing speed work versus running moderate to easy paces and the eccentric contraction is going to be the thing that really is the hardest part to replicate uh, for the downhill running i think a lot of times when people think of hilly courses they dread the uphill section and that is the harder section to actually do but over the course of a race it's the eccentric contractions that you get from running downhill that's likely going to make your quads really sore the following day and give you a little bit of a you know some wobbly legs kind of near the end of a longer race if you're not adequately prepared for it so finding ways to get eccentric contraction into your routine without actually being able to do that sustained downhill running is kind of what we're getting at here and speed work will give you some of that. So strength work is another focus. You can do that on some eccentric contraction type of lifts. There's some that I personally like to include, which would be like an eccentric lunge. And these, I'm going to list these off and I'll give some kind of pointers on how to do them. But ultimately, if you just Google them and look for like a video that shows it, that's probably going to highlight a little bit better as to what I actually the mechanic of this movement is. But an eccentric lunge is essentially you have kind of like one foot a little bit further than the other and the back foot is like a little bit on your toe and you lunge down with that. If that's really easy for you, you can add some weight. You can add weight to all of these actually and find a kind of a point where uh, you feel like you can do an adequate amount of it. Uh, side step downs. So if you have like uh, a box or some sort of elevated thing like a stair, you can have one foot planted there and then step down and step back up, add weight as needed for that as well. Reverse Nordics are another great way to kind of prepare yourself for some of the eccentric stuff. Uh, skater squats, which is sort of like a squat with your trail leg kind of not touching the ground. So it's almost just an advanced version of kind of like a, like a forward lunge almost. Um, single leg box squat. So that's kind of so, sort of like the side steps, but from the front with a single leg box squat. These are some, there's, there's a, 
a bunch of other eccentric lifts you can do. These are some of the ones that I like to look at and, and implement if I'm looking to kind of replicate some of that st sort of stuff for the uphill stuff. It's a little easier to replicate because you're not trying to just like replicate the load of the kind of eccentric contraction. So those like weighted lunges, weighted box steps and things like that are just going to be something you can do. This is where staircases can be great uh, for the uphill side of it. Um, and this is actually where I would maybe consider the weighted best. I think you want to be careful with that sort of stuff because for one, it, it, it can be a little more just risky in sense of an injury standpoint, if you're trying to run up and down stairs, or even if you have Hills, uh, running up and down those with a weighted vest, the up part is totally fine. It's the down part that worries me with folks is sometimes where the risk might not match the reward quite quite well enough to justify it. But if you have like a staircase that is that you can control well enough, I think something like maybe a little bit more of a brisk walk, uh, lunge type movement up the stairs with a weighted vest and then walking down, you're going to probably get a little bit more of an eccentric uh, response from that. But be careful on the downside of things for those. And so there's some things that I would consider. Um, along with just the biggest one that I really haven't touched on, which is just getting fit generally. So if you do like a really good, just training program and get fit and you're stressing yourself in an adequate amount, recovering and doing that again, and you're working through what I would consider uh, a good order of operations of focusing on things that are least specific and possibly some weaknesses early in a training plan and gradually implementing more of the things that are specific to the intensity that you're going to race at as you get closer to the race, just going through that process is going to get you prepared to be able to do a race, even if you don't quite have the ideal training to, to replicate. So ultimately you got to work with what you got and just think of it too, as like everyone kind of has something in most cases that is going to, uh, negatively, if you want to look at it like that impacts their potential to execute a perfect race in a perfect scenario. Most people just don't have access to a quote unquote perfect scenario for any specific course, because, uh, it's, it's hard to replicate that stuff. People have busy lives too, and are ultimately probably not going to be able to train like a professional athlete in most cases. So don't get, don't beat yourself up too much about this and just recognize a lot of people on the starting line are going to be in the same boat as you and get as fit as you can and, uh, and have fun out there. So next topic is shoe stack height. And this came from, I didn't get a name, but the Twitter handle is slicing onions at slicing onions wanted to know about shoe stack height and what my thoughts are about that. So generally speaking from just an overall health and durability standpoint, I'm a big advocate of having a shoe quiver. And what I mean by a shoe quiver is a rotation of shoes that offers a very like low or firm profile, uh, or maybe even some outright barefoot work, as well as having shoes that are kind of more soft and cushioned so that you kind of have this scenario where you can give your lower legs the exposure to a more uh, higher impact training load with those lower profile shoes barefoot stuff. Some people like to just get out on a beach or on grass field and do some, some strides or some, some easy running on there with no shoes on and really strengthen up their feet and lower legs that way. Uh, low profile shoes can work really well for this as well. But then 
you want to be, you want to treat your lower legs like you would any other area of your body where once you stress it, you need to let it recover to get stronger and then continue that process before, in order to get them as strong and robust as you, you, you want them to be. So uh, if you go out and do all your training in like barefoot or low profile shoes, you may have to really reduce your training for a while to build the strength and then kind of keep inching forward. Most people probably aren't going to do that. So it becomes a question more of, I want my lower legs to be strong enough, but not necessarily as strong as I could possibly get them at the expense of potentially training as much as I can by fully utilizing all the technology with shoes out there. So let's say you go out and you do a workout with your low profile shoes and the next day, your lower legs are a little sore. Well, this might be a great opportunity to put on a, a more cushioned shoe for that easy run you do the next day and kind of save your lower legs. The trade-off there is that when you step into a soft cushion shoe, it allows the, your foot proprioception or the nerves on your, the bottom of your foot to be just a little more relaxed because there's a greater surface area that feels comfortable enough for your body to feel like it can take the impact of your running mechanic. So you're just a little more likely to get a little sloppier with your gait, which can put you in a position where your foot is not necessarily coming down underneath a bent knee. And over time, if you do that too often, you might end up with things like hip issues, knee issues, lower back issues, and stuff like that. So a lot of times when I'm working with folks, we take a look at that and it's like, are you dealing with lower leg issues, knee, hip issues, all the above, none of the above. And that can sometimes dictate kind of where we're going to lean a little more heavy. If I have someone who's got a lot of lower leg issues, a lot of foot issues, or maybe they're coming off maybe they're like me and they're coming off an ankle injury. They might be better off in a little more of a soft shoe at first in order to kind of protect that point of impact or that closer to the ground impact area. Uh, someone who's got some knee issues or some hip issues, they may benefit from having a little more precise of a landing point so that their foot and they're bearing their weight underneath a bent knee and therefore a more firm shoe where your foot is going to find that real precise landing point because it's going to be very uncomfortable to strike anywhere else might be in their best advantage for a little while, or as they let things kind of settle down on that side of things. But if everything is operating well, I think that rotation kind of allows you to maximize your training load, uh, by, by being able to maybe go past where certain areas of your body would fail, uh, but also keep everything kind of strong and resilient over time. And that's where I think the shoe quiver really shines. The big kind of landscape changer with this topic, though, has happened in the last five or six years, where essentially, long story short, is we have a new shoe technology that came out around 2016. Uh, it was a midsole component that was combined with a carbon plate that basically what it did is it increased the amount of energy return that is given when you when you tow off on your stride. So rather than you started, people started with this new technology, they would lose way less of the energy that they put into their stride or their foot plant with this technology. And what that did is it ended up creating like a scenario where people were just running faster times with the shoe than what they would be running in a standard training shoe. So we kind of had this landscape shift where Ideally for racing, you'd have lower legs that were strong enough to tolerate a firm, responsive, low profile shoe, because that was going to give you the best kind of energy return off the ground. Whereas now this new midsole compound, the more of it you can get, it's almost the better. So this kind of floated around for uh, a few years 
when, when Nike was the only shoe company that had the technology. So they had it in prototypes for a while. What people don't often recognize with shoes is when you see a shoe show up at a, at a shoe store on the wall and you can go and buy it, that shoe was probably being designed 18 to 24 months earlier. So through that process, what they're doing is they're going through various iterations of that. They're getting test samples sent in, they're trying it, they're tweaking it, they're having wear testers uh, play around with and tell them where the gaps are in the in the durability and the performance and everything they're trying to do. They're just fine tuning it. So there's usually around a two-year period from when the first prototype shows up to where it hits the shelves. And what we had there was a scenario where you had uh, athletes who could use Nike or people who had access to Nike's prototypes were able to wear these shoes for a couple of years in like 2016, 2017. And anyone who couldn't get their hands on them essentially had the old technology. So it was sort of like showing up for a bike race with a steel frame versus a carbon frame and expecting things to go as well as it would have when everyone had that same uh, equipment for a bit there. Since then, most companies have caught up and offered up a version of that. So uh, the tricky part, I think, is now it is once they kind of got some good data on the actual performance advantage that these shoes provide, um, it, it kind of floats around 4%. I think some of the studies show like it can be as little as two and as much as eight, which offers a really interesting kind of topic because it's like, well, what happens if your mechanic just happens to only provide two, your competitors provides eight. It's like, that's a pretty big, pretty big, uh, percentage variance when you were talking about, especially the top end of a field where, you know, seconds might be what separates the, you know, first and second place finisher in, in like an Olympic 10 K or a marathon, even in some cases. So it, it gets a little, a little fuzzy with that, but what they did end up doing is, uh, putting regulations down where you could only stack a shoe to a certain point. And those numbers are 40 millimeters on a road and 25 millimeters on a track for Olympic distance. They don't usually use the 25 millimeter rule for ultra marathons. I think just because 25 millimeters is like a moderate cushion shoe. And historically speaking, you know, maximum cushion shoes have been fairly popular choice for ultra marathon runners, just because of the amount of time they're on their feet. Uh, so it's just something that just, I think due to the, the long nature of that, they're not enforcing that rule for track ultras, at least not yet. Um, but uh, anyway, that's where the regulations come in. And it also got a little interesting because when those rules came out, they also said you can no longer use prototypes without them being first verified by world athletics. So what that means is when you have that window of time of like 18 months to two years where you're working on developing the shoes, unlike when Nike first did it before the regulations were put in place, a shoe company cannot just say, hey, here's a prototype, go take this to your race, have fun with the new technology. It has to get sent in, analyzed, and determined that it meets the new regulation standards. Then it gets entered onto a list, which then it can be used, but you'd still have to have access to that prototype, which basically limits it to professional athletes and people who happen to be wear testers for the brand. And then within that, technically, I think, think if this hasn't changed, you cannot use that shoe until it's available to the public. If it is a world record or world championship event. So if someone were to go to the Olympics with a prototype that hasn't been available to the public yet, you have a scenario where they would not be able to technically break a record or 
medal at a world championship with that product, unless they can get to further complicate things, a therapeutic use exemption that would justify their use of that product and that product only. So it gets really kind of goofy. And essentially we're just in this transition phase, like similar to what we saw with cycling, probably back when, you know, bike technology improved where there's this five, six, what's ultimately probably around a seven year window where, uh, you know, there's just a range of what people have had access to specific shoe technology that is basically across the board showing to give at least some performance advantage. So in the world of running, we've been seeing a lot of uh, um, interesting scenarios occur here. A lot of records getting broken with the, with the new shoe technology um, and just a lot of questions as to how to kind of look at that, whether there should be like a line drawn of like pre-shoe tech, post-shoe tech records, things like that. And it, it gets really interesting. Um, for me specifically, I have only raced in the shoe tech once it was actually this year in April at the USATF hundred mile road championships. Uh, I'm sponsored by ultra footwear. There's those, they're the shoes that I prefer to wear when training and racing. They're at the prototype stage right now. So they have some shoes that have this technology in it that are not yet available to the public, but, um, they did get it cleared by world athletics to be within the parameters. So I can use them for racing. The hardest part about the USATF road championships is it typically is a pretty fast course where records could potentially get broken. It's a short loop about 1.17 miles and it's on a, it's not a perfectly flat course. It's in Las Vegas, typically in February. So temperatures are normally pretty ideal. This year it got bumped back because of all the COVID stuff and it, we, they held it in late April. So it hit 94 degrees that day. So I had a really hard time of kind of comparing that day to other flat, fast hundred miles where I've done in more, uh, cool temperatures. So I'm looking forward to trying it out on a, on a course or a scenario that matches, uh, something like what I, when I ran 11 hours and 19 minutes at the Pettit center in 2019 and tried to get a feel for like how much of a difference it does or doesn't make for me personally, if I can kind of execute a similar race. Um, but yeah, that's the shoe, the shoe side of things, shoe stack side of things. Uh, final question is, uh, has to do with age and what do you do when you get to a point where you're old enough and you're, you're looking at your results and your performance and you're starting to notice dips where, uh, you're still in shape, you're still fit, you're still doing all the right things, but your performances are starting to trend down just because you've been in the sport for long enough where that just ultimately happens. As they say, father time is undefeated. So what is, how do you stay motivated in that case? And I think this is going to be very individual to the person. And, and I'm actually sort of, I guess I don't, I'd say neutral on kind of like what I think would be ideal here, because a lot of times I think these type of things open up doors where it's like, maybe it's a good time to look at your relationship with a specific sport and ask yourself like, well, what have I been missing out on that I would like to do that I'm not necessarily as interested at finding my peak potential at, but I've been kind of putting on the back burner because I've been spending a lot of my physical energies and time trying to peak for a certain race distance. Um, for me personally, I think that would be something that I would probably want to do when I get to a point where it's like, I'm no longer going to run as fast as I am able to now or have been historically. 
I'll probably still keep running in my life and show up at races and test myself, but I may just be a little more holistic in that I start looking at strength training as less of a supplementary activity and more of a, like a co-equal with running or something like that. Um, another thing to think about too, is just age group stuff. So, uh, one of the, the beautiful things about people having long, long running careers is there's this, uh, you know, there's, there's should be a lot of, uh, of pride in being able to stay in a sport for a long amount of time and not lose interest, lose motivation. So, um, that won't happen with everyone. So as you get older, you can start focusing on like age group targets and things like that. And, and you'll, you'll move up a lot of times just by the nature of other people not being able to sustain the sport as long as you. So it almost introduces like this long game type of a, of a, of a goal. If you're interested in kind of seeing where you stack up in the, in the specific age groups and just look at like historic ranges too, rather than thinking like, well, the average person finishes in this amount of time in this race, and this is where I'm targeting. Maybe look at it within what is the average finishing time for this age group? How far up can I get there? And just kind of just redirect that a little bit. Uh, along with that question came just races in general, like what, uh, what makes a good race and how does a new race kind of enter that arena when there's already these like longstanding established popular courses, how do they draw people to them? Like, what have I seen that makes these younger races successful quick? And this one came in from Noah Bloom, uh, by the way. So thank you, Noah, for sending this one in. And this is a really cool question actually, because the way I look at it is a great race oftentimes has a few different things going for it, but one of these things it does really, really well at one of those is like a story or a history. So this can be either new or old history, obviously requires it to be been around for a while. Take a race like the Western States, 100 It's super popular. And part of that is because it has this this like really kind of historic story, like betting his friend, he could make, he make it on foot and finish under 24 hours and more people wanted to do it. And now people see that and hear that. Um, it also had a really popular documentary, uh, called unbreakable that just was like a perfect scenario where they decided to do a documentary on that event in 2010, right. As the sport was starting to ramp back up in popularity. And it just was a great year to do it. Cause there was like on the men's side, these four guys who had been undefeated at the hundred mile distance going into it, who are starting to be kind of like, uh, names within the sport that people were recognizing. And it was, it was just a really good kind of documentary to follow. And that kind of put that course back on the map again, after the sport had been a little more kind of underground for a while there. Um, so you can be new and have a cool story too. I think, uh, one thing to look at with this and it also goes in with another thing, which is like a unique challenge is some of these backyard events. So these are ones that kind of have popped up since I got into the sport. So they're pretty new, but it's essentially like they'll call them a yard and they're usually around like around four miles. And every hour you have to complete this yard or this loop. And it's a last man standing thing in the sense that a group of people starts doing it every hour. They got to complete it. If they don't, you're out and you just keep doing it until there's one person left. So it can be very brutal but also really kind of an interesting dynamic of how do you really strategize that? It almost like introduces a whole nother layer of uh, both logistics and uh, like kind of tactics for an event like that. Uh, so that's kind of got a unique challenge and uh, interesting story behind it where it's just different enough from a traditional foot race that it kind of catches people's eyes and they're like, oh, I want to try that out. 
Um, another thing is just like location. Like you pick a race and you put it on in a location that people want to go to, then they're going to justify it because they'll say, Hey, I want to be there anyway. So I'll go and do this race and then we'll hang out and go on vacation for a few days or however long after. And then, then they're just sweetening the pot in terms of what they're getting for that. And some of these races and traveling from here get quite expensive. So if you can do a scenario where you're checking off a vacation bucket list or a destination bucket list and get a race in, that's usually something that, that goes well, also just the way they promote it. So however they get it into people's feeds or eyes on it is going to be, is a big calling card. Ultimately people are going to spend a few times a year, probably perusing like what event do they want to do? So if your event is easy to find, it can grow in popularity and then it can just spread through word of mouth and things like that. Other ways people have done this is they'll just incentivize the elite field. So the, the top end of the fields uh, tend to have bigger followings on social media or bigger reach and have access to other people in the sport in very high numbers. So you invite that person or group of people to the sport and they're talking about being there, then more people are going to, going to see it, know about it and decide maybe, Hey, maybe I want to do that. So you're just going to have a, a wider reach of people who know about your event who maybe otherwise wouldn't. Um, what keeps people coming back oftentimes though, is just the experience itself. So you can do all these things, well on paper, but then if the experience does not match it, it people aren't going to keep returning. So ultimately you also have to kind of like appeal to what people are looking for from the experience uh, as well, which oftentimes with, with ultra running is just like, kind of like, what is the community like there? What is the support at aid stations? What is like the pre-race and post-race festivities look like and stuff like that are all things. That a lot of times people are there for the community as much as they are the actual race itself. So kind of keeping that side of things intact is oftentimes something that people look for. All right. Uh, a couple more things. I'm going to do the challenge yourself workout as well as highlight a day in my life from training and nutrition. So the challenge yourself this time, I'm looking to switch gears a little bit. Last time we did short intervals. I think they're 60 second intervals. Um, if you're interested, check out episode 261. If you want to hear that challenge, this one, we're going to do planks. All right. So challenge yourself. And the goal here is just to do this workout once, see how you like it. And if you like it, maybe keep it in the routine and see where your progress is made. Uh, or if you don't like it, say, Hey, it was worth a try. I'll move on to something else. The planks that we're going to do, I'm going to have them a beginner, intermediate, and advanced. The beginner challenge is 45 to 60 seconds of a front plank, left side plank, and right plank. Intermediate is 60 to 90 seconds, front, left, and right. And then advanced 60 to 90 seconds, front, left, right, but with as much of it as possible with one leg off the ground. So on the front plank, either have your right leg raised or your left leg raised as much as you can tolerate. And then when you're on your left, have your right leg up. And when you're on your right, your left leg up for as much as you can tolerate. And that will be your advanced category. So add that to your routine. See if you like it, toss it out. If you don't, there's plenty of other things you can do. If you don't like it, if you end up liking it and you get really good at it, I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Uh, last is the sample day. So this one, I am going to focus a little more on kind of the rest recovery type of day. For me, since a lot of times I think people will look at my training and they'll see the big numbers and training miles and things like that. And they'll just assume every day is just 
hours and hours of running. Uh, but there, big training requires rest and recovery in order to bounce back. It's going to be de- a person's development in the sport will depend how much they can do and then how little recovery they'll need in order to bounce back from it. But this is, this is a pretty light day for me. Uh, I do go lighter if I'm taking a complete rest day. Um, so this is kind of a, a, a light day. That's not a complete rest. So for this one, it was three and a half miles easy, uh, two to three minutes per mile slower than my aerobic threshold, or what I would consider the high end of what was considered an easy effort running. So it is significantly slower than what I would normally run at. I'm really just out there getting my legs moving, um, generating a little bit of blood flow, keeping the impact as low as possible, just getting my legs moving and keeping in a routine for the most part. Primary focus is recovery. I've even had runs like this where I intend to do something really short and easy like this. And I go out and I realize, you know what? I need a complete rest day and I'll listen to my body in that case and and take off. Um, For this particular day, I also did go to the gym. I don't typically do lower legs on easy days. I try to kind of keep lower leg stuff in the same category as uh, um, higher intensity stuff that I'm going to do in running. So I'm keeping that sort of that side of the spectrum kind of all together but depending on where my training is at might depend on whether there's even those opportunities within the training. Cause when I'm doing hundred miles, just phases of the year where I'm not doing a lot of high intensity at all. I'm focusing on race specific intensity, in which case then sometimes the rest days are a little easier to do these on just cause I've got a little more time to do them. Cause I'm not out there, you know, running hundred mile goal intensity for two, three hours or whatever it happens to be. So for this gym session, it was primarily lower leg, I did uh, weighted hip thrusters, weighted box steps, and weighted forward lunges. Uh, the nutrition I kind of phased in with this particular workout day was quite a bit lower carb, uh, just due to the, the lower output. Um, and this kind of highlights what I talked about earlier in the show too, about just not necessarily sticking to a strict range each and every day, but rather having this like more multi-day view where some days I might go quite a bit lower than my average. And some days I might go a little bit higher just because, uh, I think the context drives the need more than anything. So this day was, um, two meals and it was the AM meal was a pound of ground beef with three ounces of sharp cheddar cheese, one tablespoon of honey and four ounces of milk. Uh, the second meal was two cups of mixed lettuce, hot salsa, eight ounces of ground beef, sour cream, taco seasoning, which included chili powder, garlic, onion, red pepper, oregano, paprika, cumin, salt, and pepper. And then two cups of mixed berries was what came out to the nutrition for that day of the three and a half miles easy in the lower body gym work. So there's the sample day. Uh, we went through the workout challenge, answered some questions, and did a training update. So there we have it, folks. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 